You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. Today, we are flipping the script again. Normally, I bring a guest on the show and interview them. And I had the opportunity to be interviewed by Frontier. Frontier is a private community for investors to engage, learn, and form meaningful relationships. And they really believe by bringing together quality investors' content and in-person events that Frontier can help investors connect with the people and ideas that can truly make a difference. It's a group that I'm very honored to be a part of. You can go check it out at Frontier.co. There's no M on the end of that. Frontier.co. It's really reserved for people who are actively managing investment decisions and deploying capital. It's truly a wonderful group of investors uh, that I have the privilege of learning so much from. Through this interview, you'll get to hear the story of how Mammoth was launched. So thanks so much for listening in. We're glad to have you here. Welcome to Frontier's 10Q. Frontier is a private community for the world's best investors to engage, learn, and form meaningful relationships. To help spark and foster these relationships, we created our 10Q, a 10-question conversation where we explore what makes our members unique and world-class investors. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Tyler from Frontier, and today I'm here with Tommy Martin, who is the CEO of Mammoth, a venture firm investing in early and growth stage life science and biotechnology companies. Mammoth is based in the United States and headquartered in Fort Wayne, Indiana, down the street from the orthopedic capital of the world. Tommy, thanks for making the time for this 10Q conversation. We like to kick all these discussions off with the same opening question, which is how would you go about describing your investing strategy? So we are a venture capital firm that really specializes in broad-based healthcare and wealth tech. With our key caveat being, we really want to work with regulatory intense companies that are led by seasoned executives who have already broken out beyond ideas into execution. And in terms of the experiences that have shaped the decision to even be in the venture space and the sub-segment that you're in, could you speak a little bit about the most, I guess, formative experiences or set of experiences? Yeah, I spent the first 20 years of my career managing money for some of the leading physicians around the country. So many of them were brain surgeons or orthopedic surgeons or cardiologists. And what that's really materialized into today is two of my partners at our venture capital firm are leading physicians. One of them used to be the former chief of cardiology at the Cleveland Clinic went on to be one of the most prolific medical inventors of our day, already doing over a billion dollars of exits for shareholders in companies that he's been a part of. And another one of my partners is arguably the leading young neurosurgeon in the world. And so just having access to talented individuals like that has really been the difference maker and has helped very much shape our strategy. Fascinating. I'm just curious in terms of how you even got started in the space of managing capital on behalf of 
physicians, doctors, and specialists. Was that always a goal of yours or how do you find yourself in that that spot? No, you know, I grew up the child of a single parent who was a teacher. And so I always looked at my friends that had parents that were doctors and thought, oh, wow, you know, they're super successful, but never envisioned that's what my career would be. In fact, I started out going into youth ministry of all things. So it was a big pivot to go down the business path into wealth management. Ultimately, the way it happened was a business decision. We were just looking at the universe of wealth management and looking for something we could build a scalable business around. And doctors was really the easiest kind of low-hanging fruit. If you think about business owners, you're waiting decades for their liquidity event for them to become a great wealth management client. Whereas with doctors, there's a repeatable pump coming out every single year from leading institutions and they need help. And so we really latched onto that and built a nationwide company around that concept. So it was really fun to be at the ground level of that. There were three of us that launched that company and ultimately took it to a nationwide firm that I was able to exit. And so I've also had that experience that our founders really want to get to. I know what that whole process is like really from start to finish of building a startup, scaling it to be nationwide, ultimately exiting it for a great outcome. Well, it makes sense in terms of connecting the dots of what you're doing at Mammoth now, but I am curious in terms of that juncture of essentially exiting a successful past career and then now venturing into a very new space. Like with Mammoth, can you talk a little bit about what the thought process was about jumping into the venture ecosystem? You know, Mammoth has really been almost five years in the works. I just didn't know what it was when we first launched. So (laughs) I'll explain that. The way it happened. So, you know, I'd been working with some of the leading brain surgeons around the country for decades. One of them finally came to me one day. And and as you can imagine, over 20 years, it is almost every week, a doctor was bringing a great idea to me saying, Hey, you know, my college buddy said I should do this, or my brother-in-law said I should do this, or maybe they had their own great idea. And for 20 years, I just completely stayed away from those things. Well, I get a phone call out of the blue from one of my clients and he says to me, Hey, I want to take half of my money and put it into this one company. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. This is nuts. But this is a guy that we had looked at a lot of different opportunities together. I knew he had a really, really sound business mind. And so just more out of friendship and caring about this friend, I end up calling up that company and saying, hey, tell me what you guys are up to. Long story short, that company had developed a new super metal for the human body. And we're They're submitted to the FDA, not approved yet, but if they would get approved, it'd be the first new metal approved by the FDA in over 35 years. I mean, this was like momentous and all the testing that they'd done, this metal was far superior in every measurable medical property compared to the current metals that people were using in the body, like titanium or cobalt chromium, better bone growth, less infection. You could get half the size with twice the strength, which for minimally invasive surgery, that's really important. And so talking with this company, doing due diligence, trying to save my friend from a bad investment, I fell in love with it. Oh, by the way, did I mention they also had global patent protection that you couldn't use this super metal in the human body without going through their company. So I fell in love with it. I ended up calling the company back and said, hey, I'm sitting on a lot of cash from my exit. 
how much would you let me invest? We ended up running the Series B for that company. And one of the coolest moments of my career, we got FDA clearance on that new super metal. So what went from having global patent protection on something that has no value because you can't use it yet, immediately became immensely valuable. And so the piece that I loved about it was our investors were so happy. It was a whole different thing than managing somebody's kind of slow and steady money. Investors loved it. And I fell in love with the idea of I was bringing the future of medicine to the world. What ultimately happened was that first special purpose vehicle went really well. We ended up doing a follow-on funding for their Series C. Meanwhile, I sat down with the founder of this business, a gentleman named Dr. Jay Yadov, and had a conversation with him over dinner and said, you know, Jay, you could have retired four to six deals ago, but you haven't. What are you going to do after this company exits? And I loved his answer, Tyler. He said, you know, I've always had my foot on the gas pedal of bringing the future of medicine to the world. And I don't want to take my foot off that gas pedal. I just want to pivot. And instead of being an operator and an investor, I want to shift and I'm just going to be an investor after this company. I'm not going to be an operator anymore. So I'll launch a venture capital fund. And this was two years ago, a little over two years ago. I called him back a week later, Tyler, and I said, hey, why wait? Let's do it now. You have access to this incredible blue chip deal flow because he's like at the epicenter of the entire cardiology and musculoskeletal ecosystems. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most prolific medical inventors of our age. So all these companies all call him when they're looking at an opportunity because they want to make sure it's actually going to be scientifically valid. They want to make sure it's going to commercialize. They want his support behind it because he's one of those people at the epicenter of that space. And so he gets access to this blue chip deal flow that I would never have access to because he's just in that proximity to moving those entire markets. So I called him back, said, let's do it. You source the deal flow. You do the scientific validation that, you know, make sure it's going to be easily commercial and you green light the project on that side. After that, I can take care of it with the rest of the due diligence on investor protections and investor relations, building the technology infrastructure to support a fund, building a firm brand and ultimately franchise. So that's how we pivoted from managing the slow and steady money for some of the nation's leading doctors to you know, opening up what I believe is the most exciting healthcare venture capital fund uh, of any time in the recent past. It's an incredible story. And I think what I love most about it is that there wasn't some kind of grand master plan. You were kind of just following the breadcrumbs and dipping your toes into different areas of interest. And this is what came out of it. What comes to mind when I ask what the most challenging part of executing on either the investment strategy or just kind of running the day-to-day of managing a, a venture firm? Easily. The thing that's been the most challenging is I don't come from the venture world and that is both a blessing and a curse. There's so much good that comes out of it because I'm not constrained by the normal way of doing things. And so when I came into the space, I was just looking at what do I think is best for founders? What do I think is best for investors? 
And how would I want to be treated and structure this thing if I were either a founder or an investor? That really guided our principles. So we just set up those parameters, not knowing even what some of the norms were. And that's been awesome and terrible at the same time. And what I mean by that is we looked at it and said, we want to build some infrastructure under this thing so that strategic investors can invest, but we wouldn't have to require a million or $5 million minimum. I wanted the leading doctors that I had this great network with from around the country to be able to invest. Well, why would we do that? Even if it was a smaller investment amount? Well, because they can help us validate product market fit very quickly. They can help us commercialize product. They can help us launch product. All of these things are really, really helpful But none of them are sitting on a $5 million minimum that they can go dump into a venture capital fund. Mm -hmm. And so we launched from the ground up saying, we know we've got to have some technology under the hood of our firm because we want this thing to be scalable with lots of strategic investors. We wanted to have hundreds of strategic investors in medical systems and, and medical companies really around the globe be able to invest so that we had immediate product market validation. We had immediate distribution opportunities that we could have as a great support for our portfolio companies. I just didn't understand as we were launching how many different challenges that would present in terms of regulatory and structure, and then working with fund admin partners and how they would say, well, that's not how we normally do it. I'll give you a great example we came into it saying, you know, let's allow people to invest $50,000 if they want to, because we knew with a lot of the leading doctors out there, that was kind of their maximum they could do into something like this. So we wanted a $50,000 minimum for those strategic investors. But what we didn't want to mess with was capital calls. Like I want to do a capital call for $14,239 if that's the proportionate raise we're trying to pull in and close right now. Like that's nuts to me. So instead, we just said in our fund, well, if somebody's investing less than $250,000, then we're just going to do a capital call immediately. And none of our investors care. They're happy to do it because they're just happy to be at the dance with a fund like ours. But structurally, when we start talking to fund admin and everything, they're like, well, we don't know how to treat that because normally capital calls are always proportionate and now it's not proportionate. I'm like, it's simple math. It's not that difficult. And so we had to educate our fund admins. Like, no, we're not doing it proportionate. The first 250,000 from every investor, we call it immediately. Above that will be in the normal proportionate capital call structure. So, you know, those large family office investors aren't penalized, but there were a lot of things like that that we set up to make this fund really friendly to the hundreds of strategic investors that just made life pretty difficult in actually executing and slowed us down. Now we know how to do it. Now it's easy. I could do it again in my sleep, but it took a long time to get that figured out. Well, it's fascinating, both the the whole approach of jumping into a new space and not just taking up the model and the pre-existing structure, but imposing your own desires and goals with what you want to achieve. So <laughs> a handful of like logistical constraints that you have to be mindful of as you build this out. Fortunately, we built proprietary technology that makes all that an absolute breeze. 
So we really don't have to think about it very much. Yeah. But yes, some of those were some of the logistical nightmares of just figuring out how do we actually accomplish what we want to accomplish, which was really simply get investors to the table that are the ones that are actually going to be able to utilize and validate these products. Yeah. Well, Tommy, you mentioned that before your kind of endeavors with Mammoth, that you were also like a financial advisor and wealth manager. I'm curious, like over the course of your career, in terms of what has shaped how you approach business investing, is there a specific investing mistake or business mistake that comes to mind? as being particularly formative or memorable in your past career? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it translates over even into portfolio companies. But the biggest mistake that I made along the way by far was assuming that because somebody was good at their day-to-day job and whatever that technical expertise was, that they were ready to then be promoted to a manager. You know, we call it the Peter principle, but the concept of just because they're really good technician, that is not the same skill as management. And everybody has to go through that. I mean, that's part of becoming a manager is you're developing a new toolkit. And and I had to go through that as we were building this nationwide company. I went from a financial advisor who specialized with brain surgeons, and I was really good at that, to finding myself as CEO of a company with 300 people that we had to take care of and be mindful of. And so I was responsible for culture and development of our people, all these things. And that was a totally different skill set. And fortunately, I think for me, I went into it realizing, you know, the day I accepted the responsibility, I knew I was like a three out of 10 and knew I had to elevate my game. And so very, very quickly surrounded myself with people that could help me do that. But I think in too many organizations, we elevate somebody who's a great technician into a management or leadership role, and we don't give them the tools to succeed in that. So that's been one of my biggest mistakes. It it cost our company a whole lot of money. So it was both an investment mistake and a business mistake. Cost our company a whole lot of money because we ended up putting people in positions they were not ready for. And that's really hard to recover from. We've lost our best technicians and now they're not good managers. And we didn't have a plan in place to actually help them develop into great managers. It's a great point because I think that that whole conversation about being an analyst or a technician and being successful in your career and the toolkit that made you successful in one position as you move up the firm is not going to be the same toolkit that will make you successful in a much higher level position. I feel like that doesn't get talked about often enough. And obviously the consequences are very material, right? Absolutely. Tyler, what I'd, what I'd say about that is it's the same process. You know, the, the ability to learn that technical toolkit and develop that from scratch, it's the same process of growth that a manager or leader needs to go through. So as long as they recognize the need to continue to elevate and develop those skills in that toolkit, then my experience is most people can do it. I really think leaders can be built. They don't have to be born that way. I think you can build great leaders, but they have to have that drive to continue to learn and grow that they had when they became great technicians. If they lose that, then that's where the problem really comes into play. We spoke 
quite a bit about your background, how you got to where you are right now with Mammoth and the inception story there, and maybe shifting gears and looking ahead super long-term over the next decade plus, are there a handful of one to three things that you're either looking to build or just goals, aspirations more broadly that you have for yourself? Oh, 100%. So at Mammoth, we're really up to two really important endeavors. So the first we've talked about, it's venture capital in the healthcare and the wealth tech spaces. We bifurcate those, so they're not in the same fund. Uh, Right now, we're very laser focused on our healthcare fund, but given the strength of our team, we'll move. Eventually, we'll have a wealth tech fund. So we want to build a franchise brand in that area. You know, we want to be the known commodity in the healthcare space, in the wealth tech space for the venture community. And we also really want to be known as a great citizen in the venture space, meaning that we play really nicely with other firms. So we're not a typical venture fund where a lot of their value add is we're going to replace your CFO or your CEO. That's not where we add value. We're very complimentary in that our value add is is very much in you know regulatory commercialization scientific validation and then ultimately marketing and distribution and then exit hmm. so those are the places where we had tremendous value but it's not in the traditional oh we've got a great cfo we're going to come link you up with so it's been very very fun for us even though we're a new kid on the block it's been awesome for us to already be playing in the sandbox with a lot of great venture capital firms that are just happy to have our thought leaders at the table because they know we can help move companies faster if we're part of their deals. So we we really want to build a household brand in the venture capital space in that area. And what I mean by that is everything we're building, we're not thinking about just fund one, fund two, we're thinking about fund 17. That's always part of our leadership discussions. So that's the first thing. Second thing, as we launched our venture fund, we very much designed our firm to be very, very friendly to the registered investment advisory space, the RIA channel. Well, why? Because I come from it. I know that channel. My partners know that channel inside and out. We know everybody in the RIA space. It's a tight community, the, you know, the thought leaders in that space. And I'm so honored to be a part of that community. What we recognize very quickly, there's $5 trillion of assets with very, very little allocated to venture capital. And so we recognize there's a massive blue ocean opportunity here. So we actually built our firm from the very ground up to be RIA friendly in a way that no one else has done. And we've gotten a lot of recognition for that. So that's been tremendous. And part of my hope over the next decade is to actually help other firms build venture capital in a way that is accessible for RIA firms. There's just so much opportunity. I believe that those kind of, I'll call it retail multimillionaires, also want to help bring the future to the world. And they've really been boxed out of that in the past. So this kind of macro trend, we've seen this with like Robinhood of democratizing access to investments. I want to be a big part of that wave as it relates to kind of moving venture capital into the space for retail multimillionaires to be able to access. So so we're going to keep building on that and help other firms build on that, not just us. The third piece really brings all these components together. 
And what we did under the hood was we actually built a proprietary technology engine to run our fund. And it was just to make our fund easier, to make it play with RIA firms, to make it easily scalable with hundreds of limited partner investors, not just few or a dozen. And as soon as we built it overnight, other funds started coming saying, oh my gosh, can we utilize this? We want to tap into this, this engine. I knew we were onto something when we were trying to onboard with a lot of other different funds in the private investment space. And it was just a nightmare to do it. Hmm. And we had built an engine where we could do anti-money laundering checks, know your customer checks, accredited investor verification, and allow somebody to transfer money immediately. And we built an engine, we could do that in less than five minutes. And everything's in good order. And we've accomplished all the regulatory and funding aspects. That's what allows us to scale with hundreds of strategic LPs. And as soon as we built it, people wanted access. And so that is now part of our actual strategic roadmap is to take that concept and actually turn that into an entire company in its own right that provides that whole tech ecosystem for other funds, particularly other emerging funds or venture capital funds. And then especially those that want to have access into that RIA space. It's fascinating even following this whole trend of democratizing access to specific types of asset classes that retail investors typically haven't had access to. You mentioned Robinhood, obviously on the public equity side, but I think of like a masterworks on the art side or a fundrise and doing real estate. And it seems like there's huge opportunity here for any players that are looking to get involved on that front. So it'll be fun to follow Mammoth's journey as you guys continue to grow. You know, in terms of thinking long terms and what you're looking to build, it also begs a question more broadly of what you're optimizing for. For. When you think about either what Mammoth or what you personally are optimizing for, what is the handful of things that come to mind or the subcomponents of that kind of optimization equation? Yeah, I think the most important aspect of it for us, Tyler, is we're really building everything we build, not just to be good for us, but to be good for the entire private investment community. So whether that's real estate funds or venture capital funds or private equity funds or crypto funds, whatever it may be, everything we're building, we are optimizing to be accessible and useful, not just for ourselves, but for the entire community. You know, for, for you personally, is there anything that you are particularly compulsive about or you know maybe put in like a lighter fashion when you find yourself with a bit of free time how do you go about spending that is it an activity you find yourself drawn towards or some sort of behavior that you find yourself tending towards yeah so my family would tell you that i'm compulsive about everything tyler and you know what they mean by that they would tell you i if i do something i am all in on it so it's mostly good a little bit bad sometimes, but <laughs> like I am all in on wanting to be a great husband. Like I love my wife. She is just absolutely a rock and I would not be where I'm at without her support along the way. So I'm all in on that. 
I'm all in on being a dad. You know, I have a, a special needs daughter we adopted from overseas when she was two. It's not as altruistic as it sounds. We didn't know she had special needs when we adopted her. So that's been absolutely life-changing for my wife and I. You know, she's now 19 years old, but really going on four mentally. And then I have two boys who are 16 and 15 and are uh, just awesome, awesome young men. And so I am absolutely all in on being a great dad for those guys. But this kind of transpires into my work as well. And the part that's great is like, I'm just able to accomplish so much. And if I take something on, people know they're going to get my absolute best every time, because that's just the gear I always want to operate in. The downside is I don't have an off switch. And so, you know, this question of like, what do you like to do when there's nothing to do? Like, (laughs) I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, that's so. That's such a foreign concept. I'm always multitasking. Uh, you know, I, I'm actually put speakers in my shower so that I could listen to audiobooks because it's like I don't want to waste that time. So yeah, I, you know, I'm compulsive about everything, and fortunately, it's been more good than bad. I think it's what's allowed me to be relentless and and get to the point I've gotten to. But it's annoying for a lot of people that think I work too hard or I'm too intense, whatever it may be. It's it's like, I enjoy it. I do things that I love doing. So I don't need a break from those things because I love what I do. Yeah. I love it. It's a great answer. And I think many in the community will probably be able to relate with not having an off switch sometimes. You've probably covered this and maybe twofold, threefold at this point, but in terms of what you do differently than most others, is there anything there that we haven't covered as it relates to whether it's Mammoth or, or you personally? Yeah. You know, I think ultimately peer pressure has just never really been a factor for me. You know, like I never touched alcohol in high school. I just didn't see the need. And So I've never really cared about peer pressure. If anything, I was the one delivering it, (laughs) you know, and that was great in athletics, for example. And, and I think it's okay in building a company, but I really don't care what everybody else is doing. I'm super happy to be an iconoclast who bucks the system, the trend, the current way of doing things. I think overall, that's just why we don't get caught in a pattern of, oh, we have to do something this way. And so that has translated into what you've already heard in the company, but that also plays out in my life kind of day to day. I just, you know, if everybody else is buying a Tesla, I don't feel like I have to go do that. I do it because I want to do it. Yeah. And ultimately, I appreciate that when many, many times in my life, people said, oh, you can't do it that way. You know, I would just be like, well, why not? Yeah. And then I'd try it and then I'd get lucky and it would work or I'd try it and it wouldn't work at all. And I'd learn a lesson, but I never felt like, well, just because everybody else is doing it that way, that's how I have to do it. Well, I think in life, but especially so within investing specifically, having the superpower of not letting others' peer pressure affect you is really a remarkable superpower. In terms of things that you are looking to understand more deeply right now, is there anything within the venture ecosystem with how you're building out Mammoth that is occupying a lot of your mind space right now? This goes beyond just mammoth, beyond venture capital into just a, a broader life worldview. So uh, I think the thing that I'm, I'm really thinking about pondering the most lately is how do we build world-class organizations that are deeply, deeply inclusive 
of anybody that wants to come do great work there without having to check my own values and beliefs at the door. Like I want to build inclusive organizations that are inclusive for everybody, including me. And, you know, there's just not a ton of great examples out there. There's a lot of great companies that have been built on the founders kind of ideology. There's other great companies out there that don't really have any ideology. They're just like, hey, we take anything. It doesn't matter. For me, it's really this aspect of what drives me day in and day out. Again, I'm unashamed of this. I don't care about peer pressure. It's my faith in Christ that ultimately drives me. So how do I show up as a business leader, as a business owner, and operate the same way at home as I would at work? as I would at my kid's school, as I would at church and be the same guy in all these places, but build an organization in a way that's completely inclusive to people that don't share that faith, where they feel valued and they feel celebrated and they feel just as excited to get up and go to work. And there's a tension there because you know i i really believe that the best businesses are those that embrace people that come to the table with very different beliefs and understanding you get just such a better viewpoint when you don't have people around the board table all just nodding their head agreeing with each other but to develop that in a way that i don't have to sacrifice who i am that's the piece that i wrestle with and continue to learn more and more and I think the the best thing that's happened to me over this past year is coming to this realization and, and talking with some awesome CEOs running some pretty large publicly traded companies that have said, you know, what we figured out was it's always better if we allow people to opt into something instead of forcing everybody to be somewhere that's uncomfortable. And in my real world example behind that is I was in a company where like at every company meeting, they would like say a prayer and the people that that was meaningful for, it was really meaningful. There were a lot of people that said, I work here because I get to work at a company where I can actually pray at work. But imagine how the people felt that that wasn't their background. They're going into that, even though they would say, you know, if this isn't your thing, that's totally okay. Just join us in a moment of silence. Even though they try to be mindful of it, imagine being that person in that room that has never prayed before or follows a totally different faith. There's no great way to do that where you're not forcing people to feel excluded. And instead, what one of these mentors told me, he said, you know what we do? We do an optional time before the meeting where the people that want to come participate can come, but nobody in the room has to be excluded when the actual meeting starts. And I was like, that is brilliant. Those are the types of solutions that I want to continue to find and understand more deeply so that I can still show up be myself no matter where I'm at, including at work, and that other people can show up and and have their most important values and worldview not be something they have to check at the door, but do it in a way that's super inclusive where you can build a great organization where you don't have everybody that looks the same, talks the same, worships the same, whatever it may be. And so I'm really thankful to be 
part of this wave of trying to get our arms around it in a way that can really deepen the diversity inside of organizations without stifling the people that have values and beliefs that they don't want to have to check at the door either. It's a fantastic answer. And the question has been asked and talked about a handful of times of like what you're seeking to understand more deeply, but this topic of essentially trying to capture the upside of having different employees or individuals within your firm that have differing worldviews while not creating kind of problems or forcing problems within a given environment. In terms of anything right now that consistently surprises you with what you're doing at Mammoth, with how you are helping advise and, and build new companies, is there anything right now that consistently surprises you? I guess the thing that surprises me the most is the deals that the MBAs do that just have no fundamental sense (laughs) in medicine. I mean, it just blows my mind, Tyler. And, you know, I'll, I'll put myself in the, you know, in that camp of like the suit and tie, the business guy. There's a lot of deals I look at. I'm like, oh, this looks really, really good on paper. But it's having partners that are actually in the operating room day in and day out have saved us from so many bad investments. And these investments are being brought to us by some of the top healthcare venture capital people out there. And we're looking at it looking at how it actually plays out in the real world of an operating room, realizing there is not a chance in the world that this is actually going to be successful. And then having that ultimately validated, but I'm just shocked about the types of investments people just throw money at. And we would like to be part of the trend of smart money, not (laughs) just, not just spray and pray, but actually going into businesses that have a real viable opportunity for great success. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you liked this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.